0: Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order.
1: The problem with modern-day's unipolarity is precisely
0: like that. The West is leading. Ukraine down the Primrose path. We don't have enough tanks. We don't have enough vessels. We don't have enough planes.
2: To bring chip productions here to the U.S. Samo Buria is a big thinker in every way. Samo is the founder of Bismarck Analysis, which helps companies, governments, investors, and philanthropists in their role of maintaining and advancing civilization. The public and private briefs of Bismarck Analysis have looked at issues as varied as the real power players within the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, how the design of NVIDIA chips makes the company well-placed for a world in which AI and data management take an increasingly central role, and the venture capitalist and startup culture in India. Yatamo has also been one of the most original and penetrating thinkers on the grand issues facing humanity and the megatrends we are experiencing today. His great founder theory, which originated the concept of live and dead players, and his ideas of intellectual dark matter and social technology have entered the vernacular for investors and public intellectuals. Most importantly though, Samuel's contributions to thinking about the rise and fall of civilizations have important lessons for the modern world and our fears of Western decline. It should be obvious then why a podcast devoted to examining the economic and geopolitical consequences of the shift to a multipolar world order, would ask Samo to be our first ever guest. Samo, welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show. The Cold War dominated international relations and geopolitics and economics as well between 1945 and 1990. After the Cold War ended, we entered a unipolar world order in which the United States dominated. When the neoconservatives, or as some people say, the liberal universalists, took over U.S. foreign policy, their ideology seemed to drive diplomacy, international relations, and the geopolitical trends, events, and order that we've experienced in the last 20 or 30 years. But within your idea of great founder theory, how have live and dead players influenced the world that we find ourselves in today? And how are they influencing the trends that we're experiencing today? First,
0: it's important to explain what are live and dead players. A live player is an active adaptive individual or small group of people that are closely coordinated with each other that can respond dynamically and creatively. They don't just win at whatever the existing game is. Sometimes they transform the constraints of the game. An interesting example of a live player in foreign policy during the Cold War uh, would actually be Henry Kissinger. As much of a stereotype as it is, the maneuver of empowering China precisely to create a greater rift in the communist bloc, thereby solidifying the geopolitical consequences of what until then had been mostly an ideological split between the Soviet Union and China, was a tool through which live players in US foreign policy broke bipolarity. So temporarily, You introduce multipolarity, the Soviet Union, the United States, and China makes immediately a detente between the Soviet Union and the United States, something that is possible, something that's achievable, because it escapes the zero-sum logic. And likewise, there can be significant gains then from empowering China as a counter block to the Soviet Union. China and Russia, historically and today as well, have latent geopolitical uh, conflicts of interest. At the time, they even had technological and economic conflicts of interest. However, in this very creation of unipolarity, where perhaps the collapse of the Soviet Union would have never happened without the pressuring through a much more developed China, were the seeds that undid the unipolarity. Today, we, I think, have a space for live players to decide whether the world will be bipolar or multipolar, but the course away from unipolarity is overdetermined. In many ways, we could see the new conservative project as being a project to indefinitely prolong American hegemony in particular and Western hegemony in general. The view being that there could be a stronger unilateral interventionism that perpetuates basically the international liberal order as sort of the best way to achieve various goals, such as economic growth, or if you go more esoterically into the thinking that shaped the neoconservatives, such as the uh, writings and works of Leo Strauss, are perhaps a prerequisite for making republics functional at all. There is a deeper strain of argument here that almost goes all the way back to Plato that suggests that perhaps, you know, the polis always has to have enemies and the polis always has to have a reason to have the citizens, uh, you know, strain themselves in service of a, of a greater goal. These kind of relatively esoteric, relatively unknown ideological assumptions are often first intellectually influential, but more importantly, provide a moral justification to the live players themselves for their actions when it comes to live players they need to have a sense that they are in some way entitled to reshape the world that's often a prerequisite for being willing to change these systems and mess with them one way or another the vast majority of people i think are surprisingly pro-social and out of both sometimes laziness complacency but at other times also genuine moral conviction won't change things that they could change right systems that they could pressure it takes an astounding amount of almost megalomania to decide one day well you know our country's foreign policy needs changing and uh, i'm the person or my little clique of people
1: or the people who are going to do it so you phrased it there that the that the move away from unipolarity is overdetermined and yet the path that this will take is open to live players taking actions. Do you view the move to multipolarity as always having been overdetermined? Do do you think that there were actually choices made by live players, as it were, to put us on this course? Or is this just a kind of, in the nature of of the way things had to shake out?
0: I think that fundamentally, we could have had a much longer period of unipolarity. Um, We could have had, you know, actual centuries of a particular hegemony had different decisions been made in the immediate aftermath of the cold war so as soon as the policy of economically allowing china to develop was set that should have been adapted and changed no later than say let's say 1999 right let's let's take about the time when hong kong is handed back to china that's the point where actually All of these sort of trade war-like policies that are undertaken right now, they should have been undertaken immediately then. And 20 years of differential compounding growth might have seen in this alternative world a Chinese economy that's 50% the size of the current Chinese economy. I think it would have been much smaller, which would have been worse for standards of living. But China could have no pretensions at being a superpower, which now it clearly is. There are also other troubling side effects of this particular route we chose. The unipolarity of 1991 was a unipolarity where both European economies and the United States and Japan collectively held this uh, much more decentralized system. The unipolarity of this moment is mostly that of the United States itself. So it is... uh, always tempted, I think, the United States to take decisions that prolong its relative power, even if they weaken the Western bloc as a whole. Let's consider, say, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which I will just directly attribute to uh, the United States and its allies, since that's the only thing that makes sense. That is a attempt to set a unitary and possibly justified policy versus Russia, By eliminating an energy alternative, however, causes real material damage to the German economy. And then when we are talking about the US trade war on China, there has been an undeclared trade war as well versus, say, the European Union. There is a long-term trend towards a growing American economy and a stagnant European economy.
1: You talked about the trade wars there between China and America, and also possibly between uh, a silent trade war between the EU and America. We've, we've addressed the trade wars a number of times on this show, and we found ourselves wondering whether they'd actually work. There seems to be a lot of reason to think that these could have blowback effects on the US economy, especially given its large dependence on China and so on. So, you know, just to take a simple example, trade war against certain types of capital goods, for example, could throw. A lot of sand on the gears of the American economy and stop its capital device, base developing, so have you given any thought to the to the unforeseen consequences of this trade war? Do you think that these will definitely work or or do you see a it potentially failing in the future?
0: I think sanctions have to be always understood in a continuum with various trade policies that we see in the trade war. These are essentially tools of war. I think the United states. Of course, is taking economic hit in absolute terms, with the hope of preserving or gaining a relative advantage over China. In a political context, we are, of course, pursuing relative, uh, you know, dominance for various, you know, desirable ends such as security and so on. In economics, often people prefer to focus on the absolute measure, right? Like whether the planet as a whole is getting richer or whether you know the consumer is experiencing a benefit or, or, or a cost. I think the trade war could be analyzed in the perspective of, okay, is it bad for, for the American consumer or the American taxpayer? But it's much more notable that I think it is not going to succeed even at the goal of a relative differential in favor of the United States. It might be possible that the U.S., with some technical innovations, manages to, say, maintain high-end CPU and GPU production uh, with the help of some of the measures of the trade war. But generally speaking, the key advantage of relative American dynamism and innovation uh, seems to be the actual source of that advantage right it's not the case that china can't figure out how to build cpus or gpus as they you know as they were built 10 years ago or 5 years ago it's just that what was built 5 years ago by the time you re- you reverse engineer it there are already new you know better chips available on the market and you don't actually get to capture any of that benefit so in some narrow domains the trade war could work in preserving key American high-tech industries as basically dominated by either the United States or its very close allies like Taiwan, though Taiwan's long-term security is in question. But overall, this is too little, too late. If you wanted to prevent China from becoming a superpower or if you wanted to maintain significant U.S. advantage over China with trade policy, This, again, should have been done in 1999 or 2009. Of course, the cost would have been a few extra 100 million Chinese in poverty and probably, I don't know, half a percent or 1% of U.S. economic growth, but that would have achieved the political goal. And I think right now these are basically cosmetic measures that are building a political will and a political coalition to eventually ramp up competition with China in a military and political domain. Say, if it is difficult for Western elites, say uh, American elites, be it Washington or New York or San Francisco, to have vested economic interests in China, then these elites will not be in opposition to a later harsher foreign policy against China.
2: What do you think the chances are, Samo, that, in the event that the United States fails to prevent the rise of China, and by the rise of China, I mean the so-paso, as it's sometimes called, the point at which the Chinese economy is clearly and obviously larger and more powerful than that of the United States. What do you think the chances are that in the event that this happens, the U.S. fails to take the British path or decides against taking the British path of managed decline and decides instead to try to solve the issue as they see it through military means i think the united states has
0: a you know a very strong track record all things considered when it comes to limiting the spread of geopolitical influence as soon as it becomes a kinetic war right so the united states has been historically pretty good at arming and training their side of a civil war. Proxy war, like say the one you might have seen in Afghanistan in the 1980s, or similar to some aspects of the current Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war the Ukrainians with Western backing are uh, waging there. The key problem is setting up reliable client states. So I think the United States for example, could have very strong military means at its disposal to basically destabilize relevant governments in Southeast Asia, in Central Asia, in Africa, the Middle East, uh, even Europe that side with China, but it doesn't necessarily have a good track record when it comes to building up its client states. I think that's not happened as much. So the core advantage of the US isn't so much its ability to prevent China's rise. It is perhaps in whether it can undertake the institutional reforms necessary to maintain its growth. In the near future, right now, we're having serious questions as to what will happen to the financial ecosystem surrounding Silicon Valley. Problems such as the Silicon Valley Bank and so on, but also just lackluster returns in a time when Capital has become basically much more expensive, right? The, the market's no longer flooded in cheap money. Uh, I think these put a question mark on the next 10 years of tech-driven economic growth of the United States.
1: To change tech very slightly, obviously, you mentioned the, the war in Ukraine, which uh, to my mind has been one of the biggest events in my lifetime, at least. What do you see as the key events that have been set in motion by the war, that maybe the the war hasn't caused them, perhaps, or maybe it has, but that it's accelerated or catalyzed them.
0: I think the most important one is the reorientation of Russia from economic integration with Europe, which had always considered a geopolitical asset towards a just out-of-necessity integration with the Chinese economy. The important consequences here is that in the long run, I expect many Russian energy exports will go directly to China rather than going to Europe. And Chinese demand for these will remain high. I also think, importantly, the Western world has basically failed when it comes to sanctions, right? The original plan for the sanctions against Russia were to cripple the Russian economy, possibly cause political destabilization that overthrows Putin. This did not happen the actual economic damage and consequences that Russia itself endured were not just lower than what Western experts expected. They were lower than what Russian experts expected. So I think there's just something we really don't properly understand about the economics of sanctions. There's some phenomena here that we're all kind of miscalibrated on. So that's number one. There was a loss, a failure to use sanctions to... uh, you know, enforce geopolitical will. But on the other hand, there was a surprising success when it came to arming and training whoever is fighting a defensive war. The Ukrainians, again, the Ukrainian forces outperformed not just Western expectations, not just Russian expectations. I think they outperformed their own expectations. The first month of the war, the Ukrainians themselves were rather pessimistic about their odds. So this suggests a world where Everyone has sees more value in arming factions that annoy your geopolitical rivals, and sees less value in straightforward sanctions. It's a world that is more economically segmented. I would not be surprised if, you know, of course, the Chinese and Russian economy are extremely different. Chinese policymakers weren't observing, and perhaps correctly or incorrectly reaching conclusions as to what it would mean for China to be sanctioned in a hypothetical
2: invasion of Taiwan. To follow up on that, I'd like to ask a two-part question. The first one is the integration between the Chinese and the Russian economies. It seems to me to suggest quite a lot of synergy between the two. The Russians have a tremendous amount of raw materials, not just oil and gas as, often, as is often assumed, but metals like uh, nickel and uh, aluminium. Uh, Russia's huge producers also things like timber. Russia's now a net food exporter as well. And obviously, as we you know, the Chinese have a huge and growing demand for meat consumption, for example. Whereas the Chinese, of course, are the global superpower in manufactured goods. And increasingly, they're moving up the value-added ladder in terms of manufacturing goods. So I wonder whether pushing Russia to some extent into the Chinese camp, if you like, Samo, has given China far more strategic depth than gaining just gaining an ally would. Perhaps that alliance might be greater than the sum of their parts. And perhaps I'll ask you the second question after you've answered that because it's quite a long one. Well, we shouldn't forget just how economically necessary the
0: interdependence between Russia and the European Union actually were. On the eve of the war, Russia supplied 40% of the EU's natural gas imports, 46% of the EU's coal imports, 27% of its oil imports. It was, you know, also Russia was the world's largest wheat exporter, a leading producer of fertilizer, not to mention its, you know, vast mineral reserves. On the Russian end of the dependency, they were actually a key customer of German firms and Dutch firms. There's a lot of stuff like machine tools, um, a lot of advanced technology that's necessary for Russia to build its weapons that was uh, exported to Russia. For many of these, they are now picking slightly technologically inferior Chinese alternatives. So yes, this partnership between Russia and China, if it could endure, and if it can overcome political problems, is economically extremely potent. The infrastructure will lag. So I think there is a 10 to 20 year window where things like new ports, new rail connections, new oil pipelines, new gas pipelines will be built, where if the political fundamentals fall apart, the full strength of this economic and and geoeconomic synergy won't be realized. But once it's realized, it'll be locked in to a great degree. And if you have economic interdependence between Russia and China, that it would be an extremely formidable counterblock to the Western world. It would be very natural then to have the countries that arguably the Belt and Road is a failed attempt to integrate into China's orbit. So the countries of Central Asia, the Middle East, I think those countries would very naturally fall into that camp. And that, at that point, becomes a Chinese-led bloc of immense power.
2: Mm. The second question I wanted to ask about that was, you mentioned military affairs and uh, the ability of the United States and the West in general to arm client states or allies for defensive war and i remember on the eve of the russian invasion of ukraine bismarck analysis wrote uh, a brief uh, concerning the makeup of the russian army and the difference between the russian armed forces compared with the the western armed forces and how they both make war and i had wondered whether the the russia ukraine war might suggest a shift in military affairs, a paradigm shift, if you like, similar to that which we had in 1914, where the advantage suddenly moved toward the defender versus the aggressor and the aggressor's or the attacker's maneuver. We had the, the advent of trenches and machine guns, which really facilitated that. Now, equally, we have the the, the advent of advanced surveillance and reconnaissance. We have the advent of drones, loitering munitions, the mass-produced missiles, very inexpensive drone technology, and whether, again, we're seeing uh, military affairs trending towards deadlock and defense and how that might affect the ability of countries to fight proxy wars in the future, how it might affect the ability of countries to impose their will on weaker nations by military means? I think that
0: we've seen wars that drag on for much longer than people assume they would drag on. Let's consider that in a very real sense, the Syrian civil war which started over 10 years ago is still not concluded. Assad's government did not fall, yet no other government, be it ISIS or, or moderate rebels, really took reins in Syria the cost for the country was absolutely immense right something like 30% of the population left the economy was absolutely ruined i would not be surprised if the war in ukraine rather than grand mobile warfare or something more similar to positional warfare actually devolves into a persistent simmering conflict where the country is constantly bled for you know and and russia itself of course is sort of bled for Manpower and you know, there's this constant economic cost. I think that the ability of governments to receive training and receive weapons and effectively deploy them in a defensive uh, in a defensive way, I think that varies immensely country to country. I think Ukraine actually, reformed itself admirably after the disarray of 2014 when they lost Crimea and when in fact they still had many Russian sympathizers in the government that much preferred working or even defected to the Russian, the Russian side of that conflict, right? The annexation of Crimea could only happen with partial cooperation of local Ukrainian elites and authorities. Now, after 2014, the government is purged. You know, it's very much the anti-Russian faction is dominant. Uh, the West does a lot of training and arming. And, you know, the Ukrainian forces have effective, an effective united strategy. That was obviously not the case when the West tried to arm the government in Kabul, right? The official government of Afghanistan that fell in a matter of days. The ability to drag out an ongoing civil war indefinitely, making it a quagmire, that I think is the strongest sort of deterrence against future invasions. The ability to preemptively make a client state a credible threat, that's not yet been demonstrated. It's very much an open question. If Taiwan is invaded, is it a paper tiger? Will it be much more like, will it be much more similar to Afghanistan and the government in Kabul? Or will it be much more like the government in Kiev? I think these comparisons are not predetermined. Uh, When you look at the local level of Taiwanese politics, most mayors are actually oriented more towards China. Most of Taiwan's business elites do uh, most of their work in China. The armed forces actually are in tension with the elected pro-independence government of Taiwan. And at the end of the day, an actual declaration of independence from Taiwan might just be a prelude to an actual necessary military response from China. So it's not even clear that pro-formal independence results is the best way to uh, pursue actual independence of Taiwan. I think that the specifics of the countries matter immensely. The willingness of the West to arm and fund and train. I think that increases as a result of the recent war. Trust and sanctions should decrease, but I don't think policy establishments learn very much from past experience when it comes to sanctions. There's a large established body of literature that seems to be basically always ignored. On sanctions, they seem to be a political necessity driven more by domestic factors than real international plans. Sanctions are undertaken so as to make it seem as if you are doing something without needing to escalate to military action. They're not judged on their effect on the enemy. They're only judged by, well, this is what we did. In response to aggression.
1: So you mentioned Taiwan, and you mentioned something that, that's not widely discussed in other media. We've we often we've discussed it on here, that a large part of Taiwanese society is actually in favor of closer relations with China, from the business elite to people in local government and so on. And of course, the, um, the elections there recently, the local elections, were uh, held as a sort of a referenda on China and the Kuomintang, the, the pro-Chinese party, won. There's obviously been a lot of planning. You mentioned it a moment ago about a potential invasion of Taiwan. But I've always thought that this suggests ta- that, that the best Chinese strategy will be to wait until this geographically close, relatively culturally similar island just naturally gravitated toward the Chinese sphere of influence. Do you think that's likely to happen? And what do you think a United States response will be to that?
0: You know, when it comes to an invasion of Taiwan, I think the likeliest result isn't an extended, terrible ground war. The likeliest result is, and the likeliest war, is a, a naval and an air war where the government of Taiwan, to the best of its ability, tries to concede the war and conclude it since the economic consequences are so devastating for them the Taiwanese elites will also wish to avoid being expropriated of essentially the majority of their wealth, which is tied up in investments on the mainland. So there's, you know, in a way, there's a democratic pressure, there's a plutocratic pressure uh, to concede and, and almost lose such a war, right? The U.S. calculus here would be to try to win such a war before that pressure becomes overwhelming and essentially humiliate China, right? Shoot down a bunch of Chinese planes, sink a bunch of Chinese ships. The escalation from here would be if China attempted to defeat the US when it comes to air power and sea power. I don't think they're that ambitious. I don't think they have necessarily the capacity to do so, but this is a space where the much discussed surprise of every single war, Right, every single war is, uh, you know, can't really be forecasted very well because the technology for waging war changes so much. It might easily be the case that the discussed problem of, let's say, massed missiles or drones just make a classic surface navy obsolete. That it's actually impossible to protect aircraft carriers or cruisers, and that even piloted planes. Are perhaps a thing of the past, right? You might not need a fighter like the F 22, let alone more recent and questionable fighter designs. So I think it would be possible in that scenario for China to, through a technological surprise, through an investment in a very structurally different Navy and Air Force, even defeat the US in a small local war. I do think overall interests would be such that almost everyone would want to keep this a small and local war. So perhaps the U.S. would even go as far as to uh, pretend that it's not actually fighting a war with China, that it's the Taiwanese themselves, and that the U.S. is just, you know, providing jet aircraft or providing missiles to them.
2: Samuel, there's been, of course, a lot of talk about the rise of China. And so far in this discussion, we've discussed... China a great deal because the China-US conflict or the Chinese-US rivalry, shall we say, rather than conflict as yet, really dominates the international relations and diplomatic uh, news stream, especially at the moment. But do you think that this discussion of China rising has reached a a point of inflection where it's really past a point where anything can change? And if so, Where do you think we will go ultimately? We spoke about the potential for a military solution, but where do you see it going? Because I sensed in your answer to the last question, you believe there's really a great deal of incentive within this theater of conflict in a way that perhaps wasn't in the Eastern European theater of conflict to avoid any kind of military encounter or full-blown war. I think the key difference... The key
0: difference is, first off, geographic. The island of Taiwan is, in fact, a difficult island to invade through a naval invasion. There's something like five good landing sites, all relatively easily fortified. So that's a disincentive for China to attempt a full-on amphibious invasion rather than some military intervention short of that. The second incentive is the difference in what local elites think. 2014, local elites... In Ukraine, had a reason to defect to Russia. In 2022, they did not. In 2023, Taiwanese elites, if a war were to happen, have a reason to uh, pressure their own government to concede to China. Right? And this this pressure is basically the economic interests and ties on the mainland. In a way, the U.S. is not even a straightforward economic ally of Taiwan anymore. U.S. pressure for TSMC. To build chip fabs in the United States is basically pressure to, hey, give up your competitive advantage and give it to us. Right? Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that even that economic interest no longer really works in Taiwan's favor. Meanwhile, you could easily imagine China, at least in theory, proposing, well, you know, we're one country, there's no reason TSMC you know, couldn't be China's greatest chip fab. And there's no reason it couldn't be still based in Taiwan 20 or 30 or 40 years from now. You're just an island and province of China at the end of the day, aren't you? That's in our national interest. The US on the other hand says, well, we're not sure if we're going to keep you independent much longer. So please move these chip fabs over to the US. So it's, (laughs) you know, I'm being a little bit provocative here. But I think I think in the West, we we don't like really thinking about what a countries local incentives or elite interests are. We would just want to see things from the big picture because the big picture is where our interests are playing out. I think the local interests often matter a lot and they constrain what are viable interventions. Now, to answer your greater question, though, to not just zoom into Taiwan, but to think about this in the big picture, China has some serious long-term internal problems. I strongly disagree with, uh, you know, um, the thinkers such as uh, Peter Zaihan who proposed China is on the verge of collapse. I think that's wish casting, right? There's this uh, belief and desire and demand for a sudden big catastrophic failure in China. I don't think that will happen. But what could happen is a future of relative Chinese stagnation of economic growth, no greater than three or 4%, possibly no greater than 2%. Once the demographics become bad enough, right? Once the age, average age of the population rises beyond possibly even the kind of old populations we are seeing right now in Japan, you might see a country that's older than Japan. To give an example from a recent country that is well on the way to having demographics that are even worse than Japan, uh, let's consider South Korea with its total fertility rate of 0.7%. Children per woman. That takes what, 40 years maybe, to result in demographics even worse than those of Japan. And Japan, of course, has long had proverbially a very old population. And old populations slow down economic growth. There's no way around it. The dependency ratio shoots up through the roof. That's the ratio between uh, those in a population who are supported versus those who are still actively contributing to an economy. Very young countries, such as some of those in Africa, can have a high dependency ratio where there are lots and lots of children and relatively few adults lots of young people relatively few adults as countries have a drop in fertility they have a window called the demographic dividend where most of the population is working and this is a great time to uh, pursue economic growth and as you leave your demographic window your dependency ratio uh, ratio you know it goes up again Except this time, it's a much less promising future. It's a future where, in a century or two, your population is half of what it currently is. There's an argument to be made that China is actually, you know, radically overpopulated. There's an argument to be made that actually, you know, if a, a China of six hundred million people might be just as powerful as a country as a China of a billion people or one and a half billion people, because those six hundred million people and the economy they support actually have everything they need within the borders of China, thereby giving it, you know, sort of more policy freedom. But that's, you know, that's a strained and I think overstated argument. Even today, China is very close to feeding itself and it hasn't even fully, you know, automated its agriculture. I think they have something, you know, ridiculous, something like 20% of the population still work as subsistence or near subsistence farmers, like that's crazy, like no no country using modern industrial agriculture really needs more than a few percentage points of people working to feed the country. Yet here it is, China has basically archaic agriculture that's ironically maintained, I think at least partially, as a means of social stability. The Chinese Communist Party actually wanted to slow down urbanization until very recently. They wanted people to stay in the villages. They didn't want the villages to empty out. Yet villages emptying out results in higher agricultural productivity because you consolidate small farms into larger farms. And because labor becomes more expensive, you're incentivized to, you know, use uh, machinery, uh, use, you know, not basic things like combine harvesters, let alone more advanced things like uh, drones for crop surveillance and so on. These are all things that require economies of scale and, cons- and require consolidation of land ownership, something the CCP it was ideologically opposed against because classic Maoist theory suggests essentially that peasants need to remain a big structural part of the society for the society to remain a socialist or a communist dominated society. That's, I think, part of the reason for the inefficient agricultural policies of the country. So even when we talk about something like food supply, China basically can feed itself. But, you know, to wrap this tangent on Chinese, you know, self-sufficiency back into the limits of China's rise, I think the limits are just the limits of future economic growth. I don't think China can do much more than catch up growth. That puts it squarely as a key competitor of the West. And then the only way to sort of stop China's rise, it's not really stopping its economic growth. It's not really even in uh, militarily containing it. though Both of these can help. It's really a challenge of will the Western world and the rest of the 21st century experience economic and possibly, again, even demographic growth, or will it shrink first demographically and eventually also economically? I think that sort of almost domestic institutional challenge is the more important one. It's not a question of whether China will or will not converge to our current economic standard or technological standard. It's a question of, well, how much further can we advance this? And uh, I suspect actually that we're, much more stagnant than we would like to admit, which means that if we are much more stagnant than we would like to admit, the world is on a long-term course, on a century-long course towards multipolarity, as China will not be the last great country to uh, reap the benefits or the last great block to reap the benefits of catch-up growth.
1: Listeners uh, to multipolarity are very interested in megatrends. So what do you think are the Uh, biggest megatrends to watch over the next 25 years? And uh, how do you think we should watch them in terms of statistics or signs or anything that you could say in that direction? Well,
0: a lot of our conversation has been about how the larger trends in the world are sometimes affected by uh, these sort of boundary conditions, right? Either, you know, economically, economic boundaries, or geographic boundaries. I think the greatest macro trend, the most important one in the world right now, is that of an actually graying planet. Until quite recently, it seemed plausible, and this is still the, still the consensus, though I think an outdated consensus among demographers, that as countries become richer, they become poorer. Well, in 2023, We have to deal with a world where some very poor countries, not just China, which is, you know, it's solidly rich now by global standards, are actually having much lower fertility. India is far away from any kind of true catch-up growth. It's far away from anything like China. Yet this year, their fertility fell below replacement. This was sort of the last major region outside of a few fragment countries like Afghanistan and outside of sub-Saharan Africa, to have above-replacement fertility. I think for the rest of the 21st century, the cost of human labor will go up because in almost you know all countries around the world, even the poor ones, fertility seems on a course to just go down and down and down. I can't think of a single country in the world that has higher TFR now than it did 20 years ago and that's very much important sub-saharan africa might stay an outlier for the rest of this century or it might to everyone's surprise converge over the next 20 years either way the global human labor force will be much diminished that's the first macro trend the second macro trend is the fact that a shrinking or stagnant population means relatively stagnant energy demands this means that there are limited reasons to develop new technologies such as fusion or even truly scale up fission. I think this actually ironically means that since our energy demand is stagnant, uh, rich countries will substitute relatively inefficient green measures and poor countries will keep on burning coal. So that's actually kind of bad for the environment. Ironically, if our energy demands were a 100 times what they are currently, we perhaps would have no choice but to go for carbon-neutral energy sources such as fission power. But since they're not, we're always tempted with windmills, solar, hydro, various energy mixes that might or might not work out. Even Germany, with the recent sanctions, has been forced to bring back online, despite all their green rhetoric, basically coal plants. It's shocking, but today coal still seems to be the most economic way to produce energy. So we can't really expect poor countries with modest energy demands to not essentially burn coal for most of the century. So the second one then is energy demand stagnation. The third macro trend I would say is the open question of artificial intelligence driven automation. It seems more and more plausible that AI will in the near future provide an abundant source of automation. I think this will, you know, in office work. I think the first effect of this will be actually increasing the economic productivity of a typical worker. So you might have one office worker uh, that could easily, you know, handle the paper shuffling and even research that previously would have taken 20 uh, workers. To give a concrete example, it's possible that, you know, GPT 8 or GPT 9 is so good that you just don't need a legal assistant anymore. You just don't need a paralegal. And the Office, a law firm, might only need three to four people, uh, which previously might have required 30 or 40 people. When it comes to robotics, I think progress is much more modest, though a sufficiently large breakthrough in artificial intelligence, a breakthrough that would, say, allow AI-designed, uh, AI engineering, essentially, right? That one could jumpstart robotics progress. So the, those would be the three big trends, a graying world, A world of stagnant demand for energy and a world with the possibility, but not certainty, of automation making the remaining human workers much, much, much more productive.
2: I think that's a very interesting way to end because I yesterday read an article from the Chinese press saying that they claimed anyway that AI had designed all of the electrical wiring needed to uh, make their latest aircraft carrier work and this would usually take electrical engineers months but the AI had designed the whole electrical wiring system in 30 minutes so perhaps the sort of automation that you're talking about is with us now and it's the sort of thing that an observant viewer could you know pick up in the press as as they read about things like this. Anyway, Samo Buria, thank you very much for joining us, sir. Before we go, is there anywhere that people can get more information about you, read about your thoughts, your ideas? Uh,
0: Yes, Uh, those interested in my writing or my team's work can follow me on Twitter at Samo Buria, so that's S-A-M-O-B-U-R-J-A, on Twitter. You can also follow the Bismarck Brief. We occasionally do free reports, but it's mostly a subscription-based service. You, there is a weekly in-depth research report on a live player, an industry, or a key institution. Previous briefs have included a look at NVIDIA, uh, TSMC, uh, the philanthropic strategy of Bill Gates, and other fascinating topics like that. You can find it at brief.bismark, so Bismarck with a CK, analysis.com.
2: Well, Samuel Bourdieu, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you for having me on the show. You've been listening to Multipolarity. Subscribe or follow for fresh episodes every week.